Hi, I'm Tejinder Uwek. I'm the founder of Invasia. So here's something interesting I discovered in this conversation. You may think that Zeroda and other similar online brokers allow you to trade without any brokerage. But that's not the reality. And they charge for certain services. The true zero brokerage app for India is probably Shunya from Finvasia. And in this episode, Tajinder Virk, the founder of Finvasia, talks about building a portfolio of global fintech businesses from India under Finvasia's umbrella. Stay tuned for Akshay's freewheeling chat with Tajinder Virk as he talks about his journey from Wall Street to bootstrapping Finvasia and building businesses that are disrupting multiple large categories. Okay, cool. Can you spend a couple of minutes uh, on your journey to becoming an entrepreneur? Maybe I grew I grew up in a family where my father was in service. Uh, all of his family members were in service on my paternal side and my maternal side were all businessmen. So the choice was obviously as a child, what lifestyle I like more. So it was fairly obvious. I knew it right at the get go that uh, I want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I did my uh, engineering from Punjab Engineering College. And then during my engineering, uh, somewhere a lot of my friends started talking about going to US and doing all those things. And I was like, uh, it sounds like a good idea, but if I go there, I don't want to go into engineering. I'll probably go into finance. Uh, I got acceptance into an MBA college uh, uh, in US. Um, funny enough, uh, I got a 100% scholarship over there. Initially, I started working with a hedge fund. Uh, most of the uh, time spent was in building strategies around mathematical models and how to make money in the stock market. Um, this was for publicly young. listed uh, equity. Publicly listed companies, so okay. by and large. <clears throat> I was 23 years old back then. I went on to uh, work for a family office uh, where we had about $1.3 billion in asset under management and I was their uh, risk manager uh, for managing all of those assets. Uh, and I met a lot of hedge fund managers like Steve Cohen's, Dr. Neil Hopper, the famous guy who sold S&P ports all the time. I was lucky enough, uh, at the age 25, I became vice president of the Fortis Bank uh, for the Global Equity Markets Division, where I, along with uh, three more people, four of us, we were responsible for managing $1.6 billion for the bank. Uh, across the world, uh, statistical arbitrage models and, uh, uh, you know, uh, pure arbitrage models. What what does that mean? Uh, statistical arbitrage, pure arbitrage models. Like you were not uh, doing like fundamental research and investing in companies. No, I was were... not doing research. Hmm. Given that I was a quant and I was an engineer uh, by background, I looked at stocks as objects. And uh, I felt that these are objects that basically have their own phenomena of interacting with each other. Uh, what we call mob psychology could somehow be implemented within the price action behaviors of stocks. Because at the end of the day, if I if I take out all the noise from everything that I see around me, all is that is left over there is demand and supply. And that leads to a you know, market microstructure where we see that there are aberrations in the market. And we try to quantify these aberrations uh, using mathematical models. And then we would say, 
how do you quantify these aberrations and uh, put them into a formula that is not backward looking, that is forward looking. Uh, that is what statistical arbitrage is, causal relationships between multiple financial instruments on their behaviors. Uh, and pure arbitrage is essentially where um, uh, it has to meet three conditions. So there is zero risk. You book your profit at the initiation of the trade uh, and there is no capital involved. Uh, that's the fundamental more definition of arbitrage. And that's what we were doing. Well, amazing. Uh, what's an example of a pure arbitrage? Uh, an example for pure arbitrage would be, let's say, for example, if I sell the Nifty Future and I buy all the underlying uh, uh, stocks of Nifty at the same time in the same proportion, then I've bought and sold the same security. Hmm, right. Okay. And sell the future higher than the cumulative price of the underlyings, then I make a profit. Okay. Interesting. So you were doing this strategy. Uh, yeah. And you had a, about a billion plus dollars uh, under management. So the whole thing, you know, came together. I had this itch to uh, come back to India. I started discussing with the uh, executive directors of Fortis Bank, uh, with the top management. I made a trip to Hong Kong. I made a trip to Brussels. Brussels was their uh, official headquarters. And I told them that, guys, this is what I want to do. Uh, why don't you, you know, let me drive uh, Fortis uh, India as a venture. Um, they all got very excited about it. Uh, I was able to convince them and they put a team of legal uh, with me to start working towards launching Fortis in India because they saw my results. They saw that I was doing and delivering. Uh, and back in the days, there was more risk taking capacity. Uh, this was right before the financial crisis. We came to India, we started, uh, we filed for uh, incorporation in India and we realized there's something called Fortis Healthcare in India already. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, okay. for, you know, Fortis okay. Bank was like a 110 years old bank. It was the second biggest bank in the world at that time in terms of revenues. And then they had to get into a lawsuit uh, with Fortis Healthcare. And I don't know what happened at that point. Uh, they realized that, uh, you know, maybe this kid is too young. We have to take the things into our own hand because India sounded very promising. Um, I did not like the whole idea of uh, being sidelined just because I'm too young. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's just the only reason. I think there were other things that came together. Um, when they saw this, uh, they probably discussed among other people that they knew in the industry. And then they realized that the best thing to do is to do an acquisition. And they found a target to do acquisition, ABN AMRO. That's when ABN AMRO got bought in. And uh, because I was not part of the whole process, I quit my job. And uh, they, they know, bought uh, ABN AMRO's uh, wealth management division, is it? Or, or like, uh, investment bank? Was essentially, ABN AMRO was bought in by a, a consortium of three banks, and Fortis was one of those banks. Okay. And uh, during the acquisition and post-acquisition, how they split, uh, you know, was a different ballgame because then the financial crisis hit the market and um, people didn't have the money that they thought they have. Uh, um, and then things went sideways. Uh, but good for me, by that time, I was out of the bank. Right. Okay. Okay. Then what next? You're out of a job. Then I started you... discussing with my brother. Uh, I joined another hedge fund, which was an India-focused hedge fund. Uh, uh, and my goal to him was, uh, uh, boss, I want to go to India. Back then, I was making half a million dollars a year in my take-home a year. And my brother was getting paid like over $150 an hour. And he was a management consultant, consulting for Pepsi and those guys. 
and then while we were discussing, uh, I met this uh, hedge fund uh, uh, owner who had an India-focused hedge fund. And I was like, I want to go to India. Uh, I'll try uh, working with you. And if things fall in place, we'll do something together. Otherwise, I'll start my own business. So I spoke to all these hedge funds and uh, banks that I've worked with. And I was like, uh, we'll manage money for you from India. Uh, and we'll manage money for you across the world, doing arbitrage, statistical arbitrage. And given our history uh, and performance, they agreed. Uh, and we had uh, uh, quite a sum of money to manage for these banks and hedge funds. Uh, and we started Finvasia. So Finvasia started as a wealth management uh, business back then. Uh, so we set up in Chandigarh a small office. Uh, there were only four people in the office. And I was like, uh, we'll manage. You know, let's see how it goes. Um, yeah, I, I, and before you start, uh, I have a couple of questions here. Um, <laughs> first of all, what's a hedge fund? How is it different from, let's say, a portfolio managers? Hedge funds are, in a way, wealth management firms that differentiate themselves that they will only manage money for uh, very high net worth individuals. The minimum back then in 2005, you had to be worth at least $5 million and making at least a quarter million a year to qualify for a hedge fund to take money from you. And they would only work with these kind of individuals. Uh, they would uh, deploy, you know, scientists and uh, mathematicians and physicists to build their strategies. Uh, and the goal was to beat the market, uh, outsmart the market uh, by not taking as much risk. Because once you're wealthy, you don't want to lose money. So, is private equity and hedge fund similar? No, they are different. You can have a hedge fund working in private equity space. Okay. So private equity is, I would say, a subclass of a type of investment, which could be done either via hedge fund hmm. or via larger investment banks. Okay. 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 Got it. So, very well. Uh, why would a hedge fund outsource money management? Because that's their core business, right? Why would they outsource it to you? That's because like that's the engine which uh, runs the uh, machine. Yes, I mean, a hedge fund is not a hedge fund if there are not people over there. If you think about it, every business is a business because there are people over there and they have certain value. Um, when, uh, and it's, when we say a hedge fund is managing money, it's actually the people at the hedge fund who are managing money. And given that they've seen uh, the performance that I had, uh, it wasn't easy to uh, convince because all of my performance was audited in a way uh, it was at the bank or at a hedge fund. Uh, so, you know, there was a proof of what I have delivered. And then I guess also because I was at a lot of seminars, being a panelist and describing. So I was very visible uh, to these guys and they felt it's obvious, you know, he wants to live wherever he wants to live, manage the money for us, stay within our mandates. And uh, that's it. And you take your money and we, you know, take our money. So, uh... You know, I, I watched this series called Billions. Uh, it, it seems like the hedge fund industry is a lot about uh, star managers. Like it's a, I mean, everybody is always seeking out those star managers who deliver better than market returns. And it's very, very people driven kind of a business, basically reputation driven rather. Indeed, it is. Uh, you know, uh, hedge funds are always looking for those stars who can deliver. Uh, and once they find it, they would do anything to keep him happy. You know, mm -hmm. like the rock star of Wall Street. Uh, that's what we felt back in the days. You know, okay. I would wake up, go to the office. I feel like I want to sell a hundred million dollars worth of share of Lehman Brothers. I don't have to call my CEO to do that. I'll just do it. You know, 
So it was that rock star feeling. So because you were a star, you had a reputation. So therefore, people trusted you with their money. The, the hedge funds uh, trusted you with their money. So, uh, and what did that involve operationally? Like you set up an office in Mohali. Uh, what did it involve? Like you, uh, like researching and taking judgments and then executing those judgments? Like at a simplest uh, By and large, uh, mathematical models were built. Uh, you know, I had built those mathematical models and I was working on it. Uh, my brother was more, uh, you know, management guy. Uh, I'm more of a quant uh, and technical guy. Uh, so he was taking care of, you know, how the operations will happen. Uh, we trade. We used to trade from Australia. Uh, Australia opens five o'clock in the morning, and U.S. closes two thirty a.m. next morning. And we were trading, you know, almost eighteen twenty hours a day. So people have to be split across. Execution has to be done. Reporting has to be done. Uh, and it was, uh, so like I said before, it was both a good and a bad decision to be safe. Uh, somewhere or the other, we felt like, uh, wow, amazing. You know, I'm still making a lot of money sitting in India. Uh, it's like best of both the worlds. But there was not in. It didn't feel like we are doing something. And uh, in what sense? Like uh, you would be making less money than if it was your own hedge fund? Oh, was that what you were feeling? That if you were running a hedge fund no. yourself, you would make more money than doing it for other hedge funds? That dissatisfaction because at large, people don't understand finance. And then the second thing we realized is we are not solving a problem. Because if you're solving a problem, people you know tend to recognize you. They tend to know you. And over here, I'm solving a problem for a very small group of people who are not even living in India. And uh, it just did not make the cut. So I sat down with my brother. Let's look at something else. Let's, let's do something. He's like, you know, what do you mean? And But the good thing that happened is while we were going through all of these, what should we do? How should we do it? Uh, at the end of the year, we saw our balance sheets and we saw that, holy crap, we paid so much money to these brokers over here. You know, and just if we did not have to pay these brokers, we would have made 10 times more, or maybe not 10 times, two or three times more money. And, and, and you're talking uh, about Indian brokers or globally? Globally as well as India. Okay. Uh, but since I was sitting in India back then, and I was like, okay, what do we do? So we said, okay, you know, first thing is, we have to stop this uh, cost. Let's get a license, uh, you know, and let's stop paying any broker in India. Uh, then we went on, we started applying for licenses. And which and year then, was this uh, when you applied? This for? I don't remember. I think 2010 or 11, okay. if I remember correctly, uh, something like that. And you started uh, this out in about 8 or 9, I guess. Uh, 2009. 9 you started, okay. Got it. So yeah. two years after running that, uh, yeah, you decided to get a broker license in India. Exactly. And that was purely to serve ourselves. Uh, then within the office, you know, when you have smart people around you, they bring smart ideas. And someone said that, why don't you start a brokerage? Since you are getting a license, you're going to set up all the operations and every single thing. And then uh, I spoke to my brother. I'm like, uh, you know, if we have to do this brokerage thing, then let's just do it a little bit differently. And then we started discussing. Uh, we launched the brokerage. So we started managing our own money with the, you know, uh, with the one license we got. We had more muscle power to tell the broker, we'll only pay you this much while you get the second license. Um, and somewhere or the other, uh, we said, let's get our feet wet. Let's launch a brokerage product in the market. Let's not try to innovate anything over there and see if you want to do this business or not. 
And when we looked at it and we were like, wow, yeah, it makes sense. Someone told me, uh, some, uh, you know, one of the guys I met uh, back in the days, he's like, you're trying to get into the brokerage business. You know, this is a dying business. I was like, no, this is not a dying business. This business has already died. This business died in 1987 when the crash happened. When e, you know, E-Trade and Charles Schwab and Ameritrade, they took over all the traditional brokerages in the U.S. This business was dead back then. And if we are still thinking of brokerage as a business, we are living in an old world where essentially, personally speaking, and just purely my personal opinion, I think anything that has to do with middlemen is not a good business. A business is not a business unless it solves a problem. It has to solve a real problem. What's the real problem? The problem is within the financial industry, your raw material is money, your end product is money. What do you do in between is your product. Do you take $100, make it $120, then you made you know, the final product. But if you take $100, you take $10 of commission out of it, and then you start you know, making money on top. It just doesn't make the cut. And uh, then, you know, the unanimous decision between uh, me and my brother was, you know, this, this industry is already dead. You, you, don't, you know, let's put the last nail in the coffin. Let's launch a zero commission uh, ecosystem in India. Uh, and that's how Shumya, so to speak, came into existence. Um, but that's, like I said, the itch to keep on doing something led us to do all the other things that we did after Shumya. But that was sort of the you know, the transition, slow transition into the obvious thing that an engineer could do in a finance world okay. was and this. When did you launch Shunya? I don't remember the numbers exactly. I believe we launched our first version or avatar of brokerage business in 2012, I believe, uh, in that ballpark when we were experimenting. Uh, then in 2015, what is now called Shunya, sort of the zero brokerage ecosystem. And it was not just a zero brokerage. Even if you give zero brokerage, you have to pay a clearing fees. You have to pay for technology. You have to pay for, you know, tens of other things. So we went on, we became uh, professional clearing members and, you know, we built our own technology and we said, when, when, when Finvasia says its product is zero commission, it has to be zero commission. No administrative charges, uh, no clearing charges, you know, no uh, call-in trade charges, no surprise charges, nothing. Zero means zero. You come, you trade, you go, you take your money. Uh, so that took a little bit of a while to, uh, you know, engineer and get all the relevant licenses. So I think 2015, uh, August, ah, 14th of August, uh, 15th of August, 2015 was when we launched the Independence Day. Yeah. Give me a broad understanding of what's a brokerage business. <laughs> um, brokerage, uh, you mean financial brokerage, uh, financial uh, commission uh, business, basically. Yes, equity, like yeah. the equity trading commission business. Let's say you open an account, a DMAT account or a trading account with any broker. Um, your journey starts with you pay a certain fees to open the account, sometimes $200, $300 as an administrative fees. You deposit money over there and let's say then you go and buy a, a stock. Uh, or a future or an option. Uh, when you go and uh, buy or do a transaction, uh, there is a commission that the broker charges you. Uh, could be a variable fees, uh, X amount per crore of notional value, or Y dollars per ticket charge, like a flat fee structure, something or the other on that lines. 
uh, then there is a, a, a then there is a clearing charge uh, that you have to pay uh, because the broker pays to the clearing uh, member. So the broker will pass you on this clearing fees. Uh, could be you know ten or twenty rupees per crore, something like that, or sometimes a minimum flat fee. Uh, then there could be other charges if you call the broker and uh, you know the call in trade charges. You're calling the broker and you are uh, giving the order over the phone. Um, and then uh, you know there could be monthly uh, uh, annual maintenance charges to your uh, you know to your trading accounts, uh, or sometimes there could even be a minimum monthly charge because you're using their technology like pay 2000 rupees a month and then you can trade this so all of these different types of charges come together um and that is how uh, you know, that is uh, one of the parts of the earnings of a, a you know or a major part of the earning of a broker um when we look at all of that none of that made sense and we said let's just make everything zero you know there should be no account opening charges no annual maintenance charges uh, no a call in trade charge uh, no technology charges uh, for using our trading platforms or anything like that. Uh, no clearing charges, no administrative charges, no commission. Like when we say zero, it should mean zero. And that's where, uh, you know, we famously say that Arya Bhatta gave Shunya to the mathematical world. And we gave that Shunya to the Indian uh, financial ecosystem. Uh, that zero means zero. Uh, and it's very important if you think about it. Um, and why I see that it has solved a problem, the reason why Shunya, uh, you know, is what it is today uh, is because uh, just a few things. It's not that we have built a rocket that will take the stock market to the, uh, to the moon or to the Mars. Uh, what we've done is we said, let's eradicate this middleman because sending a message from uh, uh, my server to the exchange server does not, does not cost anything. Just like sending a WhatsApp message, just like sending an email. It's an electronic packet that's been sent from one server to another that costs maybe nothing, almost nothing. Uh, if you don't pay for WhatsApp, you don't pay for, uh, you know, using your email or things like that. Why do you have to pay for sending this uh, data packet to the exchange? And if you think about it, let's say a mathematical uh, you know, example. Let's say uh, you are a trader. You have one lakh rupees in your uh, trading account. Uh, and you want to trade, uh, you know, let's say futures. You get 10 is to 1 leverage uh, from the exchange. Uh, uh, and you can basically buy 10 lakh worth of Nifty and sell, uh, you know, with just 1 lakh of margin. But if you're buying 10 lakh worth of Nifty, you have to sell that as well. So for that 1 lakh rupee, you're doing a transaction of 20 lakh rupees. Now, let's say you're a day trader and you trade just once a day. You know, you go in, you buy Nifty and you sell Nifty. And uh, that's your trade for the day. You don't do any more trades, but you do it once every single day uh, for one full year. You only have one lakh rupees in your account. You have transacted 20 lakh rupees multiplied by 252, or if, even if you do 250, you've transacted five crore. So with just one lakh rupees, you've transacted five crore. And if you look at the, the, the commission that you pay on it, Based on my mathematics, and there are different, uh, you know, formulas for flat fee versus percentage commissions, things like that. Uh, it comes out to be about twenty percent on an average. When I did the math back then, I know for a fact because I've worked with the largest hedge funds in the world and the biggest money managers in the world, uh, you know, who are known as the phenomena and the gurus of Wall Street, and they have not made twenty percent a year consistently. Warren Buffet made 21% a year consistently 
He started investing when he was 11 years old. Today, he's almost, uh, you know, 85. He made 20% a year in that time frame. And he is the richest or at one point, he was the third richest man in the world. He still is worth, you know, 60, 70, 80 billion dollars today by just making 20% a year. And you are taking that 20% in commissions away from traders and you hope that they will make money knowing that they are not Warren Buffett. It's not going to happen. As a result, we see more and more people come and complain. Stock market is a gamble house. We lose money over there. You go and invest just because you're going to lose money. It's a video game. You know, I, I hear all of these phrases and deep down I know capital inclusion is must. I have not seen anyone becoming wealthy unless he's made investments. And you cannot make investments in just properties or houses around where you live. You cannot just make investment in buying gold. Or you cannot just make investment putting money in a fixed deposit. Most of them are known, except in property, both gold and uh, fixed deposits are known not to or barely beat inflation in the long term. You don't become wealthy. And on one side, you are not putting your money to the right usage. And we know more and more the wealthy people in the world are wealthier because they are investing their money. And that is the source of them growing their wealth. At the same time, if you are an entrepreneur, if you're a businessman and you go to, uh, you know, you build some business, you want to raise external capital. One of the ways to raise external capital is, you know, uh, eventually everyone wants an exit. So you have to go to that IPO route at some point, be able to become a public enterprise. And that is everyone's goal. But would that goal even exist if there was no capital market? If there is not a liquid enough market, if there's no financial inclusion, the liquidity will drop in the uh, in, in equity market. If liquidity drops in the equity market, it impacts companies and entrepreneurs who want to eventually go public because at some point they have to uh, you know, raise money and they have to cash out on what they've done uh, throughout their lifetime. But if there's not liquid market out there, if there's not uh, uh, you know, because of lack of financial inclusion, that dream also does not come true. So the whole economic cycle goes per toss. If we do not bring financial inclusion, we do not bring more liquid capital markets, and we don't reduce and remove frictions from the capital market. So like the, the Robinhood model, Robinhood is, I think, pure zero brokerage. They don't charge anything at all. So, so their model is payment for order flow. Uh, is your model similar to that? And, and for people who don't understand, what is payment for order flow? Uh, payment for order flow is not allowed in India because there's no OTC market in India. Uh, and I personally do not believe in payment for order flow. Uh, I used to buy order flows when I was at Wall Street, uh, and I know that institutional uh, uh, traders are at an advantage when they pay for order flow. There are different ways to look at payment for order flow. Uh, so if you look at it, you know, when your orders are going, your orders are going to an exchange or a specific trading venue, uh, which we call a multilateral trading facility uh, or a unilateral trading facility, uh, which can also be a dark pool, and that becomes more and more technical as you go more into it. Uh, but uh, in a very simplistic term, if I have to say it, um, I'm a hedge fund. I want to buy the stock of Apple and I want to buy, uh, you know, 100 million shares of Apple. Uh, and uh, I rather, uh, you know, uh, so when a retail guy is going to the exchange and he's going and hitting the bid and the offer over there, uh, you know, he uh, uh, basically he gets what is the price that is there at the offer. The hedge fund comes and say, we will keep on giving you the price at the offer. You just hit my, essentially, uh, uh, you know, the, so 
so let's say the retail guy is selling Apple uh, and the hedge fund wants to buy Apple. Uh, so what's happening is the, the hedge fund is getting filled at the bid price while the retail guy is getting, uh, you know, uh, the lower price. In the, so in a way, puts them at a disadvantage and gives hedge fund an advantage, uh, you know, to be able to get that order and fill their, uh, uh, you know, market making books, uh, if you have to put it like that. Um, but that's not a model that's allowed in India and we do not. Uh, do uh, any uh, payments for order flow in India uh, whatsoever. Uh, and that is where, you know, uh, we've been, I mean, we go through audits every year, uh, you know, uh, and are, because right now we are among the top uh, uh, 15 uh, volume generators for the exchange, uh, we come in what is called enhanced supervision, uh, which means that uh, regulators are more concerned about uh, uh, brokers like Shunya, uh, who are too big to fail in their terminology, uh, and they have to go through, uh, you know, reporting uh, uh, a, a much more diligent uh, a reporting process, uh, which also is intraday reporting at multiple times, uh, based on uh, you know uh, uh, the positions and the equity and uh, how much money we have to put in the exchange, things so on and so forth. If you look at Finvisia as a larger picture, uh, we are into financial services, we are into healthcare, we are into real estate, we are into technology, we are into blockchain. Uh, and um, all of these uh, businesses that we built were built around the same intention to do something that basically will be disruptive, uh, bring engineering into the traditional businesses uh, and re-engineer the whole process. When we got into healthcare, uh, and now we have multiple products that we're working with in healthcare, uh, which is for diabetes reversal, for example, uh, you know, there's a lot of research that happened towards diabetes reversal that they're implementing so, in real time uh, as it comes out. No, 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 uh, please finish your thought. And Shunya is just one of the 10 other products that Finvasia has with the exact same intention. Let's disrupt the markets that we go in. Let's solve a purpose. Let's create an ecosystem that will be forward-looking uh, and that uh, uh, challenges the status quo of how the markets operate and behave right now. One of the biggest challenges we had uh, at Finmatia was how do you hire people uh, who are not trained to work a certain way? You know, for example, how do you hire a salesperson uh, to do go and do sales uh, for Shunya uh, if there's no commission involved? And we had to hire people, freshers, train them and tell them there's nothing like commission. You know, you just you get paid salary for a reason and you get paid performance bonuses for performances. Uh, don't think about commissions. Okay, cool. Cool. So, uh, first, let's wrap up what we were talking about last time. The, the question I was pestering yes. you with is, uh, how does a zero brokerage make money for you? Uh, basically, I believe brokerage uh, is an unnecessary evil to anyone who wants to manage his money. So, you were saying people who, who became billionaires just compounding at 20% a year. You know, so if, if you look at just the history of, uh, you know, if, if we go back into the history, a uh, brokerage was an ancillary business. Investment banks, they came out, uh, you know, with this whole idea of IPOs and things like that. And then once the IPO started happening and then there were secondary offerings, they had to somehow bring it to the masses, to the retail uh, consumer. And that is how brokerage became a necessary uh, uh, service that they had to give. Uh, and then the exchanges came together and all of those things happened, things evolved. Uh, but it was never a business per se uh, uh, up until very recently. I mean, I say recently, I mean, uh, you know, 
late 19, uh, you know, late 1980s uh, is when we saw that uh, coming up as a business. Uh, and there was a time when uh, brokerage was such a large business that people, uh, you know, started looking at brokerage as uh, a complete business of its own. By and large, uh, and this goes back to uh, you know all the different movies that you would see from uh, Hollywood, where brokers on the phone try to sell people stocks, and they you know are making money from that. Um, fast forward uh, to let's say two thousand, uh, after we had the dot com bubble burst, people realized that they were paying a lot in brokerage, and uh, early two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two is when uh, flat fee brokers started coming into existence. Uh, you know, uh, talk about E-Trade, Ch- uh, you know, uh, Charles Schwab or Quest Trade or all of these guys that came into existence back then. Um, and then uh, maybe not Charles Schwab, but E-Trade and, you know, th- those kind of guys. And they they changed the whole brokerage business to say it's a flat fee business. You pay us $7 uh, a trade or $5 a trade or $2 a trade. And we don't care what the size of the trade is. Um, and then, you know, you fast forward a little bit more Then there were people like Robin Hood who came out, who said, uh, zero commissions, zero, uh, you know, you don't pay any commission, but you still pay clearing fees and you still pay administrative fees. And, uh, we would make money from your, uh, uh flow by giving the flow to dark pools and things like that. Uh, fast forward to 2015, Finvisha came in and said, well, guys, let's not do it in piecemeal. You know, if you want to go zero, just go zero. Zero means zero. I have a question. The cost of a brokerage is all fixed, like irrespective of how many trades you execute, your costs are fixed. Like you have probably uh, like a fixed fees that you give to the exchange and it doesn't depend on how many trades. It does not depend. I mean, the only thing that is basically is, okay, if you go from 1 million messages to 100 million messages, you might want to put two more servers over there. It's not that the exchange is going to come and charge you more because you're transacting more. You know, and it's like, not that exchange like, charges anything to begin with. Okay, okay, got it. The, the cost is only the technology infrastructure, which has like a step change function rather than uh, every additional trade being executed costing you some few pennies. More. Exactly. That's not the case here. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. So, which means at, at scale, uh, it doesn't cost much, uh, and which is probably why a company like Zerodha is bootstrapped, profitable, because they reach scale and uh, the cost would probably not be so high, allowing them to uh, become a profitable bootstrap business. If you look at any of the listed brokers in the world, you would realize that their uh, average uh, profit margins, net profit margins are extremely high. Uh, they range between 30% to 70%. And that's for the same reason. As you scale up, there's no cost. Mm, got it, got it. Oh, um, Okay, so you still need to give the listeners some answer on how you make money. You're not a charity. You already said that. You You don't want people to assume the worst, right? It's better to give people some idea of how you make money. There are benefits that we get from the exchange when uh, there is a lot of volume. Exchange does make money and exchange does pay broker a part of those uh, profits uh, in terms of rebates that come to the broker. Um, and you know those rebates are very small at a very uh, at a very small uh, level when your volumes are low. Uh, right now, uh, if I go by the right count that I have uh, from my uh, business intelligence guys, uh, we are among the top fifteen uh, volume producing uh, uh, brokers for the exchange. 
Uh, so our volumes are fairly large. And whatever uh, you know rebates we are getting is way more than enough for us to cover the cost and make you know money on top of it. Um, and then it's not just a brokerage. You know, Finvasia is a house of brands. Uh, there are multiple brands that we have. We have more than ten brands across the world. Uh, we do plan to bring some of them to India. The more people trust us, use our platform, the more they will be willing to trust other services that we bring into India. So we don't have to necessarily charge people for something that we don't have a cost. We'd rather prove ourselves, and I think we've done fairly well uh, since we launched uh, Zero Commission uh, you know, uh, in India. Um, we, we've, seen, uh, we've seen a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, I would say, we've heard good things that people have said. Uh, not everybody says good, but uh, to a large extent, we hear that, and we believe that we are building that trust in people, uh, saying that, at the end of the day, Finvesia is an ethical, engineering-driven business built by engineers. Uh, and the goal is to be seen like that and to be delivering on that promise. And so as long as like we do... Classic uh, freemium uh, business model. Like, like, uh, yeah. What you're giving for free is your top of the funnel. Some of those people will get converted into uh, becoming paying customers of products which give you better margin. Here also, you're not exactly making loss on what you're giving for free. It's a good top of the funnel. It's basically, it's it's a good top of the funnel. You can think of it like that. Uh, you know, and uh, it's it's still not that we are losing money by doing something like this. Got it, got it. Okay. Uh, what, what are the other products? You said you have like 10 other uh, product categories. So within financial services. So we do have products in financial services, in healthcare. Uh, in uh, a technology and in uh, a real estate, uh, you know. So within, uh, let's say, if I have to say financial services, let's say. Uh, so we do have a brokerage business in India. Uh, we do have brokerage business internationally. Uh, we have we are licensed in Europe. We are licensed in uh, Africa. Uh, we are licensed in uh, Mauritius. Uh, we are in the process of getting our Australian license. We are licensed in Japan. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, so uh, these are the one. And Australia is in the making. Uh, that's for the brokerage. Uh, apart from that, uh, we also own uh, the largest social network in the world for uh, traders, uh, which is called Zulu Trade. Um, essentially, it's a, a, a you know, a, it's a, a social trading network where people can come in and they can see real time uh, trades of successful traders. We rank them. We have uh, you know tens of thousands of uh, traders on it. Uh, and then people can follow their trades real time. Uh, if, uh, let's say, if uh, I believe that Akshay is a good trader, I can see your trades real time. I will see your trades and they will get copied on my portfolio real time. Um, we've transacted about $2.5 trillion worth of postal uh, transaction volume on it. Uh, since inception, we've serviced about 2.5 million traders across uh, almost 150 countries. Uh, from it. You don't have to be a client of Invasia. You could be a client of any broker in the world uh, and still use our service. So uh, it's it's a broker agnostic platform in that respect. And it's also platform agnostic. We, we support multiple platforms uh, that people can use, uh, uh, you know, on uh, on Zulu Trade. Um, so, like you would have built integrations with a Zerodha and uh, AppStocks and all of these where uh, people's trades are uh, the, the data is flowing to Zulu Trade so that it gets real time updated. Yes, uh, the data flows into Zulu Trade, gets real time updated. 
uh, and we, uh, you know, we basically, we charge brokers a fees uh, for being on the platform. Uh, so practically, uh, when, when Finisha initially acquired ZuluTrain, ZuluTrain was uh, founded in 2007 in the US. Uh, when we acquired it, it was still charging people commission. There was a commission of uh, uh, 1.2 pips uh, trade. Uh, in Indian terms, that's about 1,200 rupees per kilo. This year, we made it zero cost. So now Zulu, people can use Zulu trade, uh, you know, without uh, paying sort of commission uh, on top of it. Um, then we also have uh, a portfolios.com. For, which is the, the, the reason for uh, a broker to pay you is because it encourages more trades. Like if a customer of a broker is on Zulu trade, then he would be probably trading more because he would be looking at what other people are trading and copying some of those trades and like engagement retention. Not Retention is more. I, I would not say they would be trading more. Uh, people would be longer with the broker because uh, the client is not losing money. As for the audited stats that we have for Zulu Trade, uh, more than 70% of our traders on Zulu Trade make money uh, if they are not manually trading. If they're just doing uninterrupted copy trading on Zulu Trade, uh, year over year, we see more than 70% people making money. And the people whose trades they are copying, what's in it for them? Why would they share their People, trading strategy? Like, they do get paid for it. They they, they get paid for it. Okay, okay. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you were talking we, about the next product. Yeah. Uh, we have portfolios.com, which is a community-driven uh, website, uh, mostly for people to share ideas and knowledge with each other, uh, have access to trading tools and risk management tools, uh, have access to real-time, uh, uh, you know, uh, like these charts that we create automatically based on, uh, you know, uh, things like that. So it's more like a knowledge-based and an education-based community uh, platform uh, that we own. And then we this have... This was uh, also an acquisition? No, this was built in-house. And this is like a subscription product? Free right now it's free. But eventually you'd have like some, some part free, some part paid, like a premium... We, uh, it's hard to say how we would monetize it. I think the first thing is because we understand technology so well and we have so much technology already. Um, it's easy for us to give it out for free. Uh, in future, how they all come together uh, would depend upon uh, the basic premises that we have. Don't charge if you don't have to uh, and keep your product ethical. So as long as those things are met, uh, we will be, uh, you know, in the, you know, do that. Uh, then we also have, uh, uh, you know, then since we're talking about finance and fintech, uh, we also have uh, a brand that we are launching now. Uh, it's called One Vault. Uh, it's a brand that's, uh, uh, it's in the banking division. Uh, it's a more banking product. Uh, we will be giving people IBANs, uh, multi-currency accounts, debit cards, credit cards, uh, and, uh, you know, a single source of, uh, um, like a single vault. Uh, which is a secure way to invest in anything and do anything with your money, whether it's uh, investing, spending, saving, lending, all of that is within that single app. Uh, and that is, uh, we are hoping our licenses uh, to be approved by the end of this year. Uh, and uh, we would be, uh, let's say, we are ex we are hoping that uh, before the end of this year, in fourth quarter, we would be launching this product. Um, and then... Uh, you know, basically tap into the... How is it different from ICICI Bank app? Uh, on my ICICI Bank app, I can do everything. 
I can invest, I can pay my bills, I can buy an airline ticket, I can save, whatever. I, I, I have multiple things to say around that. Uh, uh, if I have to pick one by one, uh, ICICI is amazing bank. You know, they've done amazing, but still traditional bank. Uh, we, uh, you know, they were brokers before Shunya came in uh, to India. Uh, and those brokers are still there. Uh, not that they've lost their business. Um, but they needed a change. Uh, I uh, I will be, uh, you know, uh, would you like to have some changes in your ICICI bank account? Uh, I'm, I I guess I'm engaged enough with it to have strong opinions on it. I mean, for me, it's it's like it's there. Like it's not. It's there. It does what it says that it'll do, uh, yeah. but it charges yeah. you money for everything that you do, yeah. and not That's, just that. Uh, uh, the typical example that I give, uh, uh, you know, to people is uh, when you go to a bank, uh, you open an account. It's almost like uh, uh, you're going to uh, a friend who's gone rogue. So let's take an example. You go to one of your very good friend. You tell him, well, I'm going for a vacation for one month. Can I keep my car in your garage? Because I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel safe uh, at my home. They're like, oh, no problem. You can leave your car in the garage. As soon as you go, take the flight, he gives your car to his girlfriend and say, you can use it, no problem. You know, so when you're so, using... So, so you you're talking about the fact that uh, money you deposit in the bank is essentially lent out, uh, like, like, a bank is a way for collecting savings of people and lending it out. People who need yes, uh, it is important to have the credit uh, available in any economy for the economy to grow, uh, and that's hands down the most important thing. Uh, but then, at the same time, you know, uh, when uh, when the risk of default starts hitting, who pays for that uh, default? It's the taxpayer that pay for it. So practically, if his girlfriend crashed the car, you will come and pay for your car to fix it. Um, you know, so that whole cycle is not really a complete loop cycle. And if the risk is anyways borne by the taxpayers, then why is the benefit not given to the taxpayers or not to the uh, depositors, you know, who deposited the money to begin with? Uh, that mismatch is very large. Uh, and I believe that mis it's, uh, we will try to see if we can do something about that. Okay. So you're saying as a depositor, I will earn at best 4 5% of my money. Uh, and whereas the bank is lending that money out at uh, 16 to 20% or so. And again, depending yeah. like between a 20 to 20% range, depending on whom they're lending it out to. So there's a big spread over there, uh, which the bank is, uh, so in a way it's wasteful. Like, like there should be a way for me to directly lend out money. To, to directly participate in that. And not just that, I think uh, even uh, the demand of a user has changed. Uh, what they want from a bank is not just to be able to give you a bank account. Uh, you know, you want to be able to go into your uh, bank account and then, uh, you know, not go from one entity to another entity. You put money to this entity, then you can start trading, then you move money over here, then you can send it to your relative, then you move it over here, then you can use it in debit card. It has to be seamless, integrated, single platform to do everything that you want to do with your money. Right. With, with, okay. Uh, so uh, this uh, bank is for Europe, right? You're, you're not planning to launch this in India. We, we will be launching uh, uh, digital banking uh, services in India as well very soon. 
Um, it's in the pipeline. What licenses do you need to launch a digital bank in India? What, what are you launching? Uh, so not a digital bank. It's a, a, let's say digital bank is let's say neo bank. If you have to say, uh, you need to have an NBFC license. Uh, you need to have uh, uh, you know brokerage licenses. Uh, you need to have uh, uh, liquidity licenses from international uh, brokerages if you want to you know create uh, you know those things. Uh, you need to maybe have uh, uh, eighty two relationships uh, in place. Uh, to be able to assist with uh, remittances and things like that. Uh, so there are a few uh, licenses that sort of add up into it. And w what what are you launching? What will that product uh, promise be? Like, what will you market it as? What's the pitch? Just to help you uh, it's, it's still in the works. I think the most I can divulge is that we are looking at banking into India right now, uh, as well as into the international markets. Uh, but hopefully you will see uh, things coming out uh, soon in India as well. Because the, the licensing norms are easier there. I, I guess Europe is pretty much... Not easy. easier. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, uh, easier by uh, by any... Uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, in general, it takes longer to get licenses and approvals in India. Uh, but the requirements uh, are uh, much more stringent as I have experienced in Europe. Uh, then in India, from a capital and a technology standpoint, they want to do an audit of every single thing about your technology, about the money that you have, uh, your business plans, uh, who are the directors. Uh, you know, like it's it's fairly exhaustive. That could take many years. Uh, this application is about three and a half years old. That is now coming to completion. But I mean, Europe has a clear path to getting that kind of a universal banking license, right? I mean, in India, even that path is not clear. I mean, there is too much uncertainty, right? Like, uh, in terms of being able to actually create, and, and like say, Revolute is, I guess, what a proper neobank should look like. I don't think India has a proper neobank because of uh, regulatory constraints. Yes, <laughs> when you say revolute, uh, there, there are multiple parallels as well to it. Um, India does have some limitations per se uh, because of the capital controls that India has and you know other regulations it has. Uh, but I believe every country has their own peculiarity. Uh, Europe has some other inhibitions uh, that the uh, US might not have. Uh, so, you know, uh, there are those... Uh, uh, idiosyncraticities, uh, you know, and peculiarities of every market, I would say. Correct, correct. Okay. So, uh, what else uh, is in the portfolio of uh, uh We also own one of the oldest uh, oldest fintechs in the world called ActTraders. Uh, it was again an acquisition that we did. Uh, this is a company uh, that builds uh, technology uh, for hedge firms and brokers and financial services company. Uh, we provide technology to some of the listed uh, uh, companies across the world and uh, unlisted companies as well, uh, and some of the largest as well. Uh, and as a matter of fact, one of the largest broker of U.S. Uh, was completely built on our technology um, at ActTrader. Uh, so that's uh, our first mobile application that we built at ActTrader was in year 2002, when people were still using GPRS. Uh, you know, so it's a fairly old. Uh, we transacted about 400 or the total money that has uh, the total volume that has been transacted on a platform over these last uh, 20 years is about 400 trillion 
uh, every month we do a few trillion uh, in terms of transaction volume on the platform. Um, so that's uh, another one of our uh, technology slash fintech uh, offering uh, that we per se have. Um, and this uh, would be, say, competing with the Bloomberg? I mean, this kind of volume uh, of trillions uh, this, is something which only like say... This would be Bloomberg. competing more with... Not really. Uh, this would be competing more with, uh, 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 you know, Fidesa and, uh, you know, those kind of platforms. Uh, Bloomberg is a much more uh, comprehensive uh, uh, communication channel uh, and database channel. Uh, you have a lot of data on it. You have a lot of calculators on it. Uh, you have, uh, uh, you know, so its own social network of Bloomberg where professionals talk to professionals. Um, but their biggest value was the data that they brought together, not the trading application. Trading application at Bloomberg is, uh, uh, you know, uh, started much, much later. Uh, I first used a trading application on Bloomberg, I believe in year 2005 or six was the first that I used Bloomberg's fix engine uh, to be transacting on, on the exchange. Okay. We also have a, a, a sort of a, a strategic partnership. Uh, in, so this, this is not like a white labeled solution. This is more like a, you log in and you trade on it uh, the way Retail users would be using retail apps like Charles Schwab's uh, hedge funds and yeah, 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 yeah. They would be using uh, it's uh, it's not a white label. Uh, it's our technology that people can then resell them as a white label, but the technology is built and owned by us. Okay, got it. Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, what else is in the portfolio? Uh, and we have a strategic partnership uh, with the. Uh, 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 with the digital asset uh, uh, payment service provider uh, that is licensed uh, by Austra uh, in Australia. Uh, and we are in the process of getting a European license as well for it. Uh, it basically helps people uh, to uh, accept uh, payments uh, on their websites or their mobile application uh, payments uh, uh, and also uh, have the payments converted from PR to crypto, crypto to PR uh, in that respect. Uh, but purely a B2B service offering, um, uh, which is licensed by Austrac uh, uh, under Austrac regulation in, in that respect. There's like a payment gateway that can accept crypto? It's like a simple way of... It's basically, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, in simple uh, terms, it's basically a payment service provider that uh, extends, uh, it's a payment service provider. So let's say, for example, if you have a Shopify uh, application, or if you have a website uh, on Shopify and, uh, you know, you want to accept uh, payments on your website, you would go to uh, maybe, uh, you know, you would go to Skrill or Neteller or Stripe or you would use WooCommerce. Uh, instead of that, you can also use Capital Wallet. Um, so, you know, on those lines, but the beauty of that is it allows you to also accept uh, digital currencies as a mode of payment. Yes. Uh, I guess there was a time for this business to be interesting, but well, I guess right now is not the time, right? Uh, with digital uh, currencies I, out of favor. I don't see that. I, I think it's not about digital currencies. I think it's about blockchain. Um, there are problems that blockchain has solved. Uh, with any technology, if you look at uh, what happened in 1987, what happened in 1999, what happened in 2007, uh, whenever there is this, uh, uh, you know, sort of greed that piles up unnecessarily over any innovation, whether that is innovation in, uh, you know, collateralizing debt obligations 
or innovation in uh, IT or WWW innovations of 1999 or, you know, financial services innovation of 1987. When too many people jumped on it, they did form a short-term crash to it. But in the long term, each one of those industries are tons of times better than what they were in 2007 or 1999 or 1987. So uh, I do hear uh, those things, but I believe that uh, at the end of the day, uh, if there's a tech, we cannot, we cannot go to the market and say, I have a technology, what can I do with? So I'll give you an example. Somebody came to me, a very good friend of mine. He's like, Natty, you are a blockchain expert and I want to you know, build something in logistics on blockchain. Can you tell me what can I do? I was like, you don't take a technology and say, what can I build on it? You look at a problem and say, what technology can solve that problem? Not every uh, every problem could be solved by blockchain. And that is the euphoria uh, or you know, the irrational exuberance uh, that has come again and again in the world. And it's it's part and parcel of uh, you know capital uh, markets evolution. I mean, blockchain, the technology, uh, I'm... I'm with you. It has a use case. Digital currency uh, is what uh, I'm not convinced that there is a use case. Uh, then why do you think we are launching a digital currency in India? Why is the government launching a digital currency in India? Okay. Although it's not decentralized finance, right? What the government is launching. Like traditionally, digital currencies are supposed to have that DeFi, decentralized finance angle to it. Uh, we do not know yet. All we okay. know is that there is a. I mean, I've seen the I've seen the uh, paper from European regulators about the digital currency that's coming in Europe. Um, when you say it's uh, decentralized, what is the definition and what is the uh, you know a, 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 you know let's say the benchmark for decentralizing? Is the benchmark that the money is not controlled and owned by central bank? Then where is the credit system coming from? If the benchmark is that your money is not held by so let's say for example you're holding an app in your hand and you say i have a million dollars in this app but that million dollars is just a database number on the other hand if you're holding a million dollars of digital currency in your hand it's in your hand you know so what is the level of decentralizing that you're talking about at the end of the day there is a value of central banks i don't believe that this intermediating central banks is the right thing to do because then there'll be no current system Got it. Interesting. And uh, what else is in the portfolio? Uh, um, within healthcare, we have uh, multiple products uh, that we are working on that, or that we have launched. Um, one was uh, or one is a product that basically does uh, analysis on your DNA, uh, projects uh, what potential diseases you could have in future, and then create preventive uh, supplements customized to each person. Uh, the other one uh, is basically working on diabetes reversal. Uh, we have, uh, uh, based on uh, the patients that we have seen so far, uh, so we have a, a physical facility in India. Uh, and we're also in the process of having physical facility in Canada. Uh, and we have uh, University of Victoria uh, doing a, 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 or, a, or a research paper with us on this. And is uh, how can we... Uh, how can we put diabetes into remission? In simple terms, uh, uh, how can uh, you know you uh, if you have diabetes, can we control your diabetes without giving you any medication, or can we get you off of the medications of diabetes 
and your sugar levels will still be in control. Um, what we have seen is uh, we've seen more than uh, we've seen a very very large uh, percentage of people uh, having an improved uh, glycemic control of their body. Uh, we've seen an overwhelmingly large uh, number of people uh, who have gotten off of uh, uh, you know medication dependence. Uh, my mother is one of the biggest examples. She's been a diabetic for the last 40 years almost. Um, and that is why I have a personal touch towards uh, this disease. Um, and uh, she has not taken any insulin injection for the last two years now. Uh, and she's doing perfectly fine. So that's what uh, we're working So this is what, uh, the, the jargon for this is digital therapeutics, right? Like the, the product that you're putting here. Uh, not digital. Uh, what would be uh, what would be your definition of digital therapeutics? Like you said, uh, all these words, neo banks, they are very uh, very abused. Uh, you know what is really digital therapeutic right. as right. for you? Right. Right. No, I mean like there's this company called Breathe Wellbeing. Uh, then there's this Freedom from Diabetes, uh, which incidentally my mother subscribed to that and it it helped her quite a bit. Uh, um, Yes, uh, I, I believe, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, they are doing good stuff uh, and they're uh, helping people in their lives, which I'm happy about because for, uh, for both me and my brother, uh, healthcare is a very emotional topic and uh, we do not look at that as a business. Um, so I do believe that uh, uh, the more people get onto it, the better it is for the world in general. Uh, we, we, uh, so we hired head of endocrinology at uh, PGI Chandigarh, which is one of the uh, most premier institutes of Asia. And their head of endocrinology uh, uh, is part of our, uh, you know, this whole uh, program that we have building. Uh, we've hired, uh, uh, you know, one of the very few uh, pediatric uh, endocrinologists of India. I think they're just a handful of pediatric endocrinologists of India. One of them works uh, with us. Um, and then we've uh, uh, partnered with the multiple uh, you know, universities. Uh, because we want it to be evidence-based uh, and we want it to be continuous care uh, and we want it to be uh, based on uh, uh, facts uh, and not saying that uh, you go zero carb and your sugar uh, levels will drop. It's not the right thing to do. Uh, and then... Uh, yeah. What are you branding this as? What's it called? Uh, this is called Genie Health. Okay. And it's available in India also? It's available in India also. What's the pricing? I mean, Genie Health, we do a lot of other things. Uh, to answer your question, the pricing is between 1000 to 5000 uh, You know, uh, 1000 is where a person comes in physical, physically to our facility because we do a physical and medical facility. And uh, the person comes in, we take his uh, uh, blood samples. Uh, our labs are inbuilt within the facility. So in that half hour that you're waiting for the doctor, all of your blood samples and results reaches the doctor, uh, you know, and then uh, you go through fundoscopy, you go through neuropathy, all of those tests at the facility itself. Uh, and then you meet, uh, you know, uh, one of the senior endocrinologists, like I said, Dr. Bansali, who's the head of endocrinology at PGI. All of this combined is, I think, only 1,200 rupees. And uh, then if you get on that quarterly programs that, they, uh, that have been built, I think they are about 5,000 rupees. Okay. And these programs would be like uh, app-based nudges to drive behavior change, which fixes. Uh, it's, only, it's only one of the things uh, because you can never be digital. The problem that I have seen is uh, people say, uh, I start using your app and uh, what if my doctor does not get paid a commission? 
and he's going to get upset about it. Uh, those things are very prevalent in India. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, it is the way uh, the uh, you know uh, practices are built. Uh, and uh, we uh, are we we combine both physical uh, and digital together because uh, there is no digital only model that can uh, completely do a comprehensive uh, you know uh, support uh, to someone's needs. So it has to be a hybrid model where you have a physical doctor and you have digital. Uh, you know, support with it. Got it, got it. Like you would have a doctor on payroll for people to get regular concerns and advice and stuff like that. We In have multiple. To... Yeah, uh, multiple doctors and payrolls, uh, uh, and it's it's a whole physical facility. You know, got like it. you would go to any other physical medical facility. Hey, hey. Um, and then uh, we also recently did uh, uh, incubate uh, uh, a company uh, with uh, uh, IIT, the Indian Institute of Technology, uh, uh, here at Roper. And uh, uh, we, uh, there, uh, you know, uh, it, it's we are we want to build uh, products which we are experimenting already, and we've been researching it for the last two years. Um, we want to be. People come and tell me that you know. And I hate to say that uh, I have heard about black boxes in finance world so much, but fact of the matter is our body is the biggest black box. And uh, we want to do our bit to change that. Uh, we don't want people to come and say, uh, we didn't come to know it happened. And uh, we are trying to build nano and uh, uh, micro devices that would uh, go inside the body. Uh, track the body uh, real time, um, you know, um, and maybe some non-invasive devices that would be basically looking at uh, other bodily fluids uh, to real time detect uh, and identify diseases. Uh, so that's what we are working on with BodyU, uh, which is the one that's incubated with IIT. Um, within yes, IIT, it's in partnership with IIT. This is called biohacking, right? Uh, when you're collecting data on uh, your body to... No, uh, uh, unfortunately, so biohacking is where you're hacking your body's mechanism to work. Uh, biohacking is more like, uh, uh, you know, uh, let's say, for example, you start eating uh, metformin uh, because metformin is known to increase longevity in a person. Uh, and people start eating metformin just because it's time to start eating metformin. That's biohacking. And then you basically, you know, you get, a, a, you know, an electrode. Um, so, uh, you know, let's let's take an example. Let's say there are electrodes that you can put in the brain that will help with the motor, uh, uh, you know, imbalances that a person has. Will that be considered biohacking or will that be considered curing a disease? Um, you know, biohacking is where you are proactively taking a measure uh, to induce certain substance into your body. Uh, to ch alter the known behavior of the body. Uh, but here we are not trying to alter anything. Right. I think typically biohacking is accompanied with data collection. Like, that data collection is a big I part know, of that movement. Uh, data collection is part of analytics that they need. Uh, but data collection is for everything, even for uh, if you go to a hospital, uh, if you go and see any doctor at any point, you can always ask him, what does your protocol say? 
that means is what is a predefined medical protocol for the certain disease that you are uh, uh, you know uh, solve, uh, solving the problem for and that protocol is based on the data that has been collected so everything is based on data collection uh, uh, but i think data collection uh, you know I mean, data is data you know what you make out of it is uh, the product uh, and in that respect collecting data is simply just uh, collecting data it is not anything else how will you convert data into products? So you told me you're building devices to collect more data, get it real-time. Uh, it's real-time data. So, uh, for example, today my mother does not have to prick her finger to see what her sugar levels are. She scans herself with a mobile phone, you know. And uh, tomorrow I want people to scan, uh, you know, their arm with a mobile phone to see what their lipid profiles are, to see if there are any cancer cells. Uh, that have uh, been induced in the body to see any of those problems that we see that come with aging. Um, so that is monitoring it. Got it, got it. Okay. And you would have some way to uh, run algorithms on this data and then give some recommendations or make predictions and stuff like that. That, is met, that, that would go in the clinical side of business. This is more uh, biomedical engineering. So this, the job of this is to uh, identify uh, and uh, alert uh, when things, uh, you know, for all of these biomarkers that are in your body. Uh, what happens clinically is then at, in the hands of the clini clinicians at that point. Got it. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Uh, okay. You said you had some ventures in real estate also. Yes, we do have uh, multiple ventures. It's a business my father started. Uh, we inherited. We, we do have a, a portfolio of uh, uh, commercial, residential, and retail real estate uh, built uh, primarily around premium segments. What's the net worth of the group as a whole? We are still a private company. Okay, amazing. Um, you would probably have uh, your uh, in your portfolio different businesses at different stages. Like there would be some cash cows which are throwing up enough cash to help you invest in uh, the, the new experiments and bets that you're taking. So, so what are the cash cows for you? We have been uh, lucky in respect that we have mostly bootstrapped and everything is basically EBIT positive. So each of the businesses that I mentioned to you right now, they're all EBIT positive and they have been EBIT positive within the first or the second year of us doing that business. Like, if you were to make a pie chart of revenue contribution from uh, all these various products and businesses, what would be like the top two or three contributors? Financial services and real estate, they both are uh, very good. Uh, you know, uh, healthcare, uh, like I said before, uh, we don't look at that as a business. Uh, we look at it as uh, something that's close to us. Uh, so uh, it would be very, very low uh, in uh, profit contributions. You know, what's the way in which you manage such a diverse set of businesses? Uh, traditional wisdom says that one should focus, uh, you know, not, not do so many different things, uh, which uh, you're going against traditional wisdom here. Do, do you have any insights to share in terms of how you manage to pull it off? Uh, uh, would love to hear that. Yes. Uh... I had been, uh, I was advised early on in my career by multiple people, uh, focus on one thing if you want to make it big, uh, you know, including some VCs I spoke to at some point as well, probably maybe 10 years ago. 
And we keep getting VCs contacting us every 15 days or so, or maybe every week, sometimes we get email. Um, my answer to them was that, uh, guys, first of all, we're not building these business to sell them. So it's not about, uh, you know, I build something that becomes valuable and then I find for an exit. I'm building these businesses with my brother and with my family because we strongly believe that we want to do this. Um, that's number one. Number two, it is never a one-man show. It is not me or my brother or my father, uh, you know, who's running these businesses. Uh, it's been run by a very, very diverse set of uh, people from across the world who have been very successful uh, you know, in running those businesses with different companies. Uh, they agreed to come together, work for Filmatia, uh, and that, I believe, is our biggest strength. Uh, for example, you know, different ones. Every business has its own management. So when you ask me, what is the price that you are selling uh, these diabetes reversal for? I said, I think it is about this because I do not know exactly it is 6250 uh, it has its own CEO. Every business has their own respective, uh, you know, not, we don't call them CEOs, we call them managing directors. They have their own respective managing directors and directors and teams. And uh, where we step in is, uh, as we grow is, uh, more to make sure uh, that strategically uh, the products and the businesses are going in the direction of what we stand for, what we believe in. It has to be technology driven, it has to be uh, transparent, it has to be solving a problem. It has to be uh, looking at <laughs> making money because of volume, not making money because we can charge this money. Uh, you know, those kind of things come into it. Amazing, amazing. Uh, what advice do you have to young entrepreneurs, aspiring founders, uh, you know, in terms of how to build, how to scale? I think uh, would be very common that everyone says, but something that I just said is, don't go out and build a business because you want to make money. Making money is very important. It is a barometer of success that you have achieved in your life. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that you don't look at a business and see how, say how much money can you make from it. You look at the business and see, is there a problem that I can solve with it? If you're solving a problem, you will get paid for it and you will make it. So focus on solving a problem. Focus on identifying what problem can be how you can solve problem for the most number of people that you can uh, serve to around you and the success will be a byproduct of that and then don't look at technology and say what i can build from it look at the problem and see what technology you can use for it uh, to solve those problems and uh, you know those are important things to look at uh, when you're trying to build a business and you're trying to make it large as an organization your DNA was B2B, right? Because you started managing money for hedge funds, fees, essentially like a B2B kind of a business, which there is a hangover of that even today in the sense that you don't spend much on customer acquisition. Do you think that needs to change? Because as you're becoming more B2C, uh, that spend on customer acquisition is like, you know, it, it's par for the course in B2C businesses. Uh, if you want to scale them up, you have to spend on customer acquisition. It depends upon the speed at which uh, you want to acquire customers at different phases of business. Um, so far, uh, we have been getting a lot of word of mouth customer acquisition, uh, but 
needless to say, even Coke and MasterCard still spends on marketing. And we will have to spend on marketing. And for that reason, I believe every business uh, in some way or the other spends on marketing. Um, so we will we will have to be at some point. Uh, it's just that we have not been as aggressive as we should have been. Uh, and that basically comes from the fact that we have been a buy-side business for the most of the time, not a sell-side business. And as we stepped into sell-side, maybe just five, seven years ago, uh, we are learning that we you know, will have to look at uh, convincing the customer as well at some point. So what's the difference here between being a buy-side business and being a sell-side business? Um, so buy-side business is basically, so let's say a hedge fund is a buy-side business because hedge fund is not selling anything. Uh, it's on the buy side. We are a buy side of finance, not on the sell. Sell side of finance is more like brokerage, uh, insurance, uh, you know, and buy side of finance is more like wealth management, hedge funds and those kind of things. Um, uh, and uh, uh, that is where when you're on the buy side, you don't do any marketing. You know, it's always uh, the other way around. Um, so that does impact the way we think. Uh, to some extent, but then I, I think we will will have to uh, add up. We just don't want to uh, be shamelessly in marketing uh, to acquire the customers just based on marketing, and then marketing becomes a drug that you can never get off of. There has to be substance in the product that has to match the marketing. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in. 